Well, g'day guys. My name's Dan. Uh, just to let you know, we're a little bit of uh, out of sync with our Bible reading today and our Bible passage today. In growth groups, uh, we were looking at chapter 8 to 10 during the week. Tonight, we're going to be looking at 5 to 7 again. Next week's 8 to 10, so we're a little bit out of sync. Uh, but let's pray and pray that this will be a great time for us in your word. Father, we thank you for your word that's just been read to us. We thank you that you are speaking to us through it. We pray that tonight would be encouraging that you would teach us your will for us, you'd teach us your plan for all the future, for history. And please, Father, shape us more and more to be people who bring you glory now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight I want to talk to you about the future. Over the last couple of years, there's been this phrase, doing the rounds, uh, which I wonder if you've heard. It's about the future. And here it is. Make sure you're on the right side of history. Make sure you're on the right side of history. Have you heard that phrase? Uh, it sometimes gets used by politicians and activists as they're arguing about some issue. And when they use that phrase, what they're saying is that when it comes to this issue, whatever it is, everybody's going to arrive thinking this about it. Everyone's going to arrive there. And if you don't get on board with thinking this about this thing, then you're going to be on the wrong side of history. You're going to be left behind. Everybody's going to be thinking this. You're going to be thinking that. And future generations are going to look back at you and shame you for your views. You'll be left behind. You'll be rejected. So get on the right side of history. Now, that's a phrase that's been used against Christians. And I want to talk about that in a second. But first, there's actually just something really helpful about this phrase. See, it does something. And what it does is, it gives you a vision for the future. And then it says, live now according to what the future holds. Now, that's just basic wisdom. That's just plain old good advice. You know, um, it's been great weather, but the next few days it's going to be raining. And so because it's going to be raining, take your umbrella when you go to work tomorrow. You want to get that job in the future? Study hard now. And so taken by itself, get on the right side of history, it's just plain old good advice. But it has been used aggressively against Christians. When our world has moved away from God's view of things, God's view for humanity, for gender, marriage, sex, whatever, and the cultural elites have said to Christians, what you think is now outdated. We're all moving here. And if you don't get on board with us here, you're going to be left behind, you're going to be rejected, we're all going to think little of you, we're going to mock you. So get on the right side of history. Now, that creates a, a lot of pressure. That creates a, a real pressure. I wonder if you've felt that pressure. Perhaps nobody's used that phrase toward you, against you, but that pressure, it's all around us, isn't it? On social media, that pressure to align ourselves with the culture around us rather than with the Bible's view of things. Lest you be outdated, you be rejected, you be unfriended. And I know Christians who've folded under that pressure, feeling that pressure, that dishonour from the world and a desire to not be dishonoured by the world, they've eventually lost confidence in God's vision of things, in God's view of history. And so slowly they've lost the courage to stand when that pressure mounts and comes in full force. So guys, how do you stand? 
How do you get the courage to stand under that kind of pressure? Well, one way to do it is by getting a clear vision of the future. Getting clear and confident on God's vision of the future. Because when you're clear and confident about where history really is heading, that'll give you the courage to stand. And so that's what tonight's about. As we keep working through the book of Esther, my hope is that God's going to give us confidence about where the future really is heading, where history is really heading. And therefore the courage to align ourselves with Jesus rather than fold under that pressure and go with the world around us. So that's what we're doing tonight and here's how we're going to get there. To get God's vision of the future, we're going to do something slightly counterintuitive. To get the future, we're going to look at the past. Because what God has done in the past, in these chapters of Esther, it's a pattern of the future to come. And so let's go back in time together now, 480 BC, back in ancient Persia, where we're halfway through the book of Esther now. And just a quick recap up to this point. The great drama of this book has been this terrible threat against God's people, the Jews. Back in chapter 3, verse 13, have a look at it there. Uh, this powerful man named Haman has made a plan to, 3.13, to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month. That was the future that the Jews were um, headed for, dreading. This day, 11 months' time in the future, they were going to be wiped out. But we finished chapter 4 on this cliffhanger moment. Esther has now become queen, and Mordecai has come to her, and he's told her, urged her to make a stand, to stand up courageously and use her new royal position to confront Xerxes and beg for mercy that the Jews might be spared. But there was a cliffhanger, because to do that was actually against the law. It would mean that Esther would have to stick her neck out on the line, because she, you couldn't just go and talk to the king willy-nilly. You had to be called in by him. But Esther has courageously said she'll do it. And so that's the moment we're up to. What's going to happen? Is Esther going to be wiped out? She's going to have her head taken off? Because Xerxes is a pretty unstable dude. Well, let's have a look. Chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and he held out his gold scepter that was in his hand and so Esther approached and touched the tip of his scepter. Whew! We're sighing with relief. Xerxes, he's, he's got, Esther's got him on a good day, he accepts her, Esther's not killed, so far so good. And Xerxes must have been in a particularly good mood because not only does he accept her but he gives her this, there's even more good news, check out what he says to her, verse 3. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom and it will be given you. So not only does Esther not get her head taken off, but Xerxes makes this outrageous offer. Hey, ask me whatever you want. I don't care what you ask me. I'll give you even up to half the kingdom, which is actually just classic Xerxes. He, throughout this book, he's just this erratic guy. He's, he's super loose. He's constantly had too much to drink. He just does whatever he feels like in the moment. Esther knows this about him 
And so she uses it to her advantage. So he says, ask whatever you want, I'll give you whatever you want. I'll give you up to half the kingdom. And she doesn't take him up on the offer. Instead, what she does is she says, how about I give you something? She says that she's going to give him a banquet, throw a, throw a party, lots of wine. And she says, and let's get Haman there as well. So have a look, halfway through five. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom and it will be granted. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet which I will prepare for them. And then I'll answer the king's question. This is Esther in action mode. This is her plan in motion. She's been using her wits and her new royal status to pull this off. In verse 1, she comes dressed in her royal robes. In verse 2 and 3, she's now known as Queen Esther. She's no longer Mordecai's you know, little, younger, adopted cousin. We're now dealing with the queen the queen of the largest empire at the time in the world. She's risen up and she's taking charge and she's perfectly stringing along the king to put him exactly where he needs to be so that he might do exactly what she wants him to do. She's creating curiosity. You know, come to tomorrow's banquet and I'll ask you there. And more than that, twice she's now had the king say out loud and publicly, whatever you ask me, I'll give you, even up to half the kingdom. She's created this kind of social contract. The king has said that he's going to answer her request. She's put him exactly where she wants him to be. And what we're seeing here is the work of God in Esther's life come to fruition. See, the unseen God behind all of this, he's taken lowly Esther and he's raised her up as queen for this very moment. Do you remember Mordecai's words to her in 4.14? Who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So far things are going well. Tomorrow will be Esther's second banquet where she'll, she'll ask the king to stop Haman's plan and she'll save the day and everything will be great. So far so good. But Haman also devises a plan. And Haman's plan could be the complete undoing of all of Esther's. Chapter 5, verse 9, Haman comes home from that first banquet and he's stoked on it. Uh, at first, he's in high spirits. But as he's going home, he sees Mordecai again and he becomes enraged because as he walks past Mordecai, once again, Mordecai won't bow down to him. And so he loses it. He's enraged. And you might think, Haman, what an overreaction. Just chill. But that's classic Haman. He's a narcissist, he's arrogant, he's proud. So verse 11, when he gets home, the first thing he does is he just starts, he needs an ego boost, so he just boasts to his wife. He boasts in verse 11 about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honoured him, and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles. Here is a proud man. A man who loves to be made much of, to be acknowledged, to be honoured and praised. Ladies, wouldn't you just love to get married to a man like that? 
I'd almost feel sorry for his wife if she wasn't as wicked as him. See, um, Mordecai whinges to his wife Zeresh about... uh, Haman whinges to Zeresh about Mordecai. Forgive me, I think the names can excuse me for that one. Um, And check out Zeresh's advice for Mordecai in verse 14. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, well, just have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go to the king and the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman and he went and had the pole set up. His wife suggests this absolutely brutal death for Mordecai and Haman is so proud, he's so bitter toward this bloke for just not bowing down to him that this suggestion of having him impaled on a pole just delights him. Now this is exceptional pride, exceptional arrogance and we're meant to be put off with it and and I'm not sure that we're meant to... uh, identify with Haman personally. I'm not sure we're meant to read this and see ourselves in Haman. He's the villain in the story. But it is worth us taking a moment to think on pride because there's pride in every human heart. In fact, there's a long history in Christian theology of seeing pride as the root of all sin, the sin behind other sins. And so let's just take a moment to think on pride. Pride, what is it? What is pride? Pride is that inner bent that seeks to make me above and better than others, that sees myself as superior to others, which makes humility the opposite of pride. Humility is thinking of others above yourself. Pride is me, 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 me. Humility is them. How does pride show itself? One of the ways pride shows itself is in your emotional life. And we see that really clearly here in Haman. If pride is this drive towards being superior, then when you think you're doing better than others, and you look around and you think, I'm doing better than them, I'm doing better than them, you you feel happy, you feel content. And this seems to be what's going on for Haman, or at least it's what he's clutching at in verse 12. When he gets home, he boasts to try and make himself feel better and he says uh, that's not all I'm the only person that Queen Esther invited to this banquet with the king he's trying to boost his ego by seeing no I am better than everybody else he's trying to make himself feel good but what happens when the proud person doesn't get their ego stroked it makes them angry bitter resentful and grumpy and that's Haman in verse 13 He says, but all of this, everything I've got, all of this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Haman's pride means that he can't stand it, that there's this one bloke in all of the kingdom, the the most powerful kingdom in all the world, but he can't stand it because this one bloke won't bow down to him. And so he says, I've got no satisfaction. Nothing else satisfies because pride means you always need to be on top. C.S. Lewis said this about pride. If I am a proud man, then as long as there is one man in the whole world more powerful or richer or cleverer than I, 
He is my rival and enemy. That's Haman, isn't it? Haman's pride showed itself in his emotional reaction against Mordecai. And doesn't Haman's pride just make him so terribly ugly? Doesn't it put you off him? It's actually what makes him such a good villain because he's just so proud. So what's the problem with pride? Well, pride ruins everything. Pride will ruin your relationships because you're always trying to be above others, better than others. Pride will ruin your emotional state. You'll be boastful when you're on top. You'll be fragile when you're not. Or worse, you'll be bitter and resentful at whoever else is on top. But most critically, pride makes you enemies with God. Here's C.S. Lewis again. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see that which is above you. It's pride in us that means we can't accept God to be God. We don't want God over us because that would mean I'm not superior. And so we want God down here and we want us up here. And so God is our enemy. How dare he try to be God over us? More than that, God is against the proud. Proverbs 16 verse 5 says this, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. This means that our pride is a massive problem. Because if the proud will not go unpunished, what hope do I have? What hope do we have? We've all been proud, haven't we? Pride is the sin behind all other sins. So what hope do I have? Our only hope is the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus. It's both the answer to the punishment for pride and the problem of pride. The death of Jesus is the answer to the punishment of pride. Because on, on the cross, as Jesus dies, he takes the punishment for my pride. And so the, law, the, the, the proud will surely not go unpunished, except that Jesus has been punished in my place. So the death of Jesus. But it's also the answer to the ongoing problem of that pride in my heart. See, a Christian can be forgiven of their sin, having had their sin punished on Jesus. But what if I still struggle with being proud? What if I still look around and and think of me more than others and want to be superior? Well, the thing that will transform you and humble you is the death of Jesus. That the eternal Son of God would willingly, the one who is superior and above all, that he would willingly come down and put himself below Man, that is the greatest example of humility and that will transform you. That, that Jesus would do that for you even when you're proud. That is humility. That's something to be marveled at and to adore. That's what will transform us. We all have pride. Maybe not quite so full on as Haman. The death of Jesus is the answer. Let's come back to Esther. Esther's plan is going well. Tomorrow she's going to confront the king at the second banquet, but Haman, because of his pride, he's got a new plan in motion to impale Mordecai in the morning. And so now we have this new tension. Esther's got her plan, but it's going to be too late. 
Her banquet's probably not, you know, they're going to be drinking wine. It's probably not at 9am, her banquet. But Haman's coming in the morning. It's going to be too little too late for Mordecai by the time Esther does stuff. So, chapter 6. Chapter 6 is where God steps in. Well, that's not actually right. God's been behind the whole thing. But this is where the unseen God's hand at work is brought to daylight. Chapter 6, there's this series of it-just-so-happened moments. Do you remember those from Ruth? We get a bunch of them here too. So let's have a look at these it-just-so-happens. Chapter 6, verse 1. That very night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of his chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. Perhaps it was good sleeping material. Verse 2, it was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. It just so happened that the king couldn't sleep. It just so happened that the record of Mordecai saving the king's life happens to be read to the king on that very night. And it just so happens that just before Haman could ask the king, hey, can I impale Mordecai? The king first asks Haman to honour Mordecai. Chapter 6, verse 6. Haman enters and, he, and the king asks him, Hey Haman, before you say anything, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? Now Haman thought to himself, because he's proud, Who is there that the king would rather honour than me? Of course he would think that. And so Haman, thinking that he's now going to plan his own public honouring, he comes up with this plan, verse 7. So he answers the king, For the man the king delights to honour, have them bring a royal robe that the king's worn and a horse that the king's ridden and have him paraded around town so that everybody can see how awesome he is. And the king says in verse 10, go and get the robe and the horse and do just as you've suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Now, isn't that just so delicious? Isn't it just so funny and ironic and satisfying, the irony of Haman having to parade Mordecai around when he was planning to you know, impale on him up on a pole. God had taken Haman's plan and completely turned it on its head. Because here's the thing, Haman could make all the plans he wanted, but if God had determined to honor Mordecai, Haman's plan, there was, there was just nothing. There was no way it was going to happen. If God had intended to take rich, powerful, arrogant Haman and humble him, it was just game over. And that's exactly what happens. Haman, after parading Mordecai around, he goes home with his head covered in shame. He goes and talks to his wife about it again. Again, she's got some wonderful um, counsel for him. Verse 13, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin... You cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Lovely, lovely wife. And Esther's second banquet is where it all goes down. Esther's plan does pay off. It's her big moment where she courageously makes her stand. She aligns herself and reveals her Jewish identity. 
and she makes her request to the king. Verse 3, grant me my, my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is the, my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. And verse 5, Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he, where is he? Where's the man who dared to do such a thing? And Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman, who's sitting right there. She outs Haman, she makes her stand, and in a moment of just beautiful poetic justice, in verse 10, so they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's fury subsided. <sighs> Isn't that satisfying? In an uncomfortable kind of way. The villain is defeated. Esther's plan worked. God's plan worked. Yes, there's still more to go. We've, the Jews still have to defend themselves. Uh, but chapters 5 to 7, they've given us this super key moment in the book. A key moment in the history of the Jewish people. Chapters, and chap, these chapters, they make for great storytelling, don't they? They're true events, events based in real history, 480 BC. But the story is masterfully crafted. The drama, the tension, the dramatic irony, the dark comedy. They've got this great illustration about the danger of pride. Uh, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. They will not go unpunished. That's exactly what happens for Haman. Just a great illustration. But as we look at these chapters, these events from all that time ago, what's the big thing? What is the big thing we're meant to see in all of this? Well, I started tonight by saying that for us, tonight is about the future. I'm gaining confidence and clarity on what God is doing. But the key to the future is the past. And so, because what God has done here in the past, he's going to do in the future. And so what has he done? What is he doing here that he's going to do again? What God has done is raised up the lowly and torn down the proud. Think with me about these couple of chapters. What's gone on for Esther in the book so far and across these chapters? Esther, God has taken this woman who in terms of her society's eyes, she's the lowest of the low. She's a young, female, orphaned refugee. A Jew living in a pagan Persian society ruled by a misogynistic despot of a king. God's taken her and he's raised her up to the position of queen, becoming the central figure in God's purposes to save his people. God's taken the lowly and he's raised her up. Think about Mordecai, who is personally hated by the second most powerful man in the entire world at the time. Mordecai, who sits at the king's gate while his enemy Haman enjoys drinking wine with the king. God has taken Mordecai and has made him the man the king delights to honour who's now dressed in royal robes, riding on the king's horse, paraded around the city being praised by the very man who wanted to have him dead on a pole. Think about Haman, the rich, powerful, boastful, successful Haman, who boasts of his vast wealth and his many sons and his favour with the king. 
God has taken proud Haman and he's humbled him, even to the point of death on a pole, a public, gruesome, shameful death. God's taken the lowly and raised them up. God's taken the proud and he's pulled them down. And here's where the actions of God in the past connect with us now and into the future. See, what God did then is a pattern of what's to come. What God did then, he promises to do again in the future. Four and a half centuries after these events, Jesus came teaching about the kingdom of God and about how history was going to end, how it was all going to play out. And listen to the words of Jesus. Matthew 23 verse 12. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is a promise from Jesus about the future. The people who exalt themselves, the high ones, the proud ones, those who are first in the eyes of the world, in the end they will be humbled. But the humble, the ones who are last in the eyes of the world, the Christian who is mocked and ridiculed for standing with Jesus, in the end they will be exalted. This is the future that we can be confident about. You can be confident about it. Not just because it's from the lips of Jesus, who is faithful and true, yes that, but more than that as well, this is what God has consistently done throughout the Bible, and particularly in these chapters in Esther. With Esther, he's raised her up as queen. With Mordecai, raising him up, the man the king delights to honour. With Haman, pulling him down. More than that even again, that's what he's done with Jesus. In Philippians 2, we hear that Jesus who being in very nature God, being the one who is by nature superior to all, has humbled himself. Not thinking he should hold on to that for his own advantage, but humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, of a human. More than that, he humbled himself to the point of death, even a public shameful death on a cross. There is no greater display of humility than that of Jesus the exalted Son of God, willing to die that same kind of shameful death that the vile villain Haman died. A public, gruesome and shameful death. Death on a pole. But what did God do for Jesus? Well, we could have predicted it from Esther 5 to 7. What what does God do? God takes those who humble themselves and exalts them. And so Philippians 2 verse 9, it says, Therefore, that is because Jesus humbled himself, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus everyone should bow. You see the pattern of God's work? Just like he did with Esther, just like he did with Jesus, he's promised to do for us as well. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's the future we can be confident about. Where one day, everyone who has humbled themselves now before the Lord Jesus, who've bowed the knee to Jesus and said, Father, forgive me of my pride, forgive me of my sin, forgive me of thinking that I could be over you and rule my own life. For everyone who's bowed the knee to Jesus, for everyone who's done that, God will forgive them and raise them up. We'll be forgiven of our sin welcomed into his kingdom and exalted with his son forever. That's the future we can be confident of. 
that's where history really is heading. And so can you see how that would give you courage? Courage to stand when people mock you and look down at you for being a Christian. When you're mocked or unfriended or... It can give you courage because you, when you stand with Jesus, you actually are on the right side of history. God's proven it time and time again. He's faithful and true. What he's done then, he did with Jesus, he'll do again. Even if it doesn't look like we've got it all now. See, life here and now might look like Christians getting mocked, being belittled, because you, stu- stand, you choose to stand with Jesus on a whole bunch of issues. You stand with Jesus on, on sex, on marriage, on gender, on identity, whatever it is. There'll be a myriad of things to come. But even if that's life now, having that pressure pin in on us, If we stand with Jesus, we truly are on the right side of history. Because you stand with the Lord of history, who humbled himself and has been exalted, and who promises that everybody who bows before him, he'll exalt with him as well. And so, to finish, the big thing here is, are you going to align yourself with Jesus? Or are you going to fold under the pressure and align yourself with the world? To align yourself with Jesus might mean rejection now, but it also means a sure confidence about where the future is heading. So guys, resolve to align yourself with Jesus, to stand with courage against the pressure, knowing that the tables will be turned in the end. And pray for our world, our proud world. We all have pride that needs forgiving, And our God is a God who loves to humble and to raise up. Our God is a God who loves to forgive. So pray that God would continue to humble many now, that they too may be raised up in the end. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that the Lord Jesus, who being in very nature God, would leave heaven and take on flesh, humble himself even to the point of death for proud sinners like us. We are so thankful for that. And we ask that you would hold on, help us to hold on to that promise that even if we feel the pressure now, even if we're mocked and ridiculed now, for everybody who's humbled themselves, you will exalt. And we pray for our proud world that you would humble it and that you would cause many to bow the knee to Jesus now that they may be raised up with us in the end. In Jesus' name, amen.